Good morning, Cornerstone. Um, this morning's reading is uh, going to be from one of our pew Bibles, the New International Version. It's from the book of Mark, chapter 14, verses 43 through 65. The two themes that are uh, going to be read are Jesus arrested and before the San- Sanhedrin. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they, did, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days we build another, not made by man. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. Have you not, have you heard the blasphemy? What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. I'd like an answer to the question, Judge. The court will wait for an answer. If Lieutenant Kendrick gave an order that Santiago wasn't to be touched, then why did he have to be transferred? Colonel, Lieutenant Kendrick ordered the code red, didn't he? Because that's what you told Lieutenant Kendrick to do. Object! And when you went there, you cut these guys loose! Your Honor! You had Marcus inside a phony transfer! Your Honor! You doctored the logbook! Damn it, Captain! You coerced the doctor! Consider yourself in contempt! Colonel Jessup! Did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. 
You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The truth that finished Jesus is the same truth that frees you. My name is Dan and I have the honor of shepherding this group of people where we are all about knowing Jesus, growing in Jesus and showing Jesus to others. There are a lot of characters in today's passage and so I want us to create a framework in our minds so that we can keep things clear. We have scene one and scene two. Scene one is in the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is arrested. Scene two takes place in the chief priest's home with a hastily gathered group of the religious ruling council, the Sanhedrin. The uh, starring roles in this drama are as follows. We have Judas, the betrayer. We have the armed thugs sent from the Sanhedrin. We have the deserters who run away into the night. We have the corrupt religious leaders, including the high priest. And later we will find out just how corrupt they are. And we have the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One, Jesus himself. It's a fast-moving drama and one that keeps us on the edge of our seats as we watch it unfold. First, let's meet the betrayer. In verse 44, Judas is referred to as the betrayer. This is the label that has now been pinned on him. This is what he will be remembered for. This is his legacy Jesus had prayed his I can prayer at least twice, his prayer of intimacy, Abba, Father, his prayer that recalled God's character, everything is possible for you, a prayer of authenticity and honesty, take this cup from me, and a prayer that rested in non-resistance to God's will, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then Judas turns up with this crowd of hired thugs who are on the payroll of the high priest. And he comes up and he he either kisses Jesus lightly on the lips as a sign of love or on the cheek as a sign of respect. And it's at this point that Judas exits the stage, having played such an, an atrocious and heinous role filled with and motivated by evil, by evil power. This is now the last that we will hear of Judas in the book of Mark, we don't hear from him again. Meet the armed thugs. Now, these were guys who were usually tasked with, with forcibly collecting tithes from the country folk. Money that should have gone to the local priests instead end up, ended up in the temple money pot. All because of these guys. Not nice people. Not nice at all. And Judas hands Jesus over to them. The Sanhedrin have not yet appeared, just their lackeys. And so presumably the Sanhedrin are somewhere between scrambling to get their clothes on and running to make it to the high priest's house after receiving this strange summons from the high priest to meet in his home in the middle of the night right away. And so Jesus is officially arrested. And one disciple, John tells us, is actually Peter, It's funny that uh, Peter keeps this detail quiet. He flails out with a sword that he had on his person. Now his effort is laughable and he only succeeds in cutting off the chief priest's servant's ear. It's a bit of a failure. Now this servant wasn't some 
humble bystander. No, he was most likely leading this militia force, representing the role and power and authority of the chief priest himself. And so, so Peter lashes out and chops off his ear. In fact, it's most likely not even the whole ear, just his earlobe, which kind of reminds me sometimes when, when I try to bowl and I'm all psyched up and ready for that strike only to have the ball roll straight into the gutter. It's embarrassing and laughable and everyone's watching. But here in the garden, everyone is watching, but it's not quite so funny. Meet the deserters. Now we have to remember that the disciples did not know that this midnight raid was going to happen. That's the whole idea of a midnight raid. That's the whole idea of a, of a raid that no one knows that it will happen. And so they went from being sound asleep in verse 41 to suddenly being all out attacked in verse 43. And Simon Peter freaks out and goes on ninja with his sword. And then everyone, including Peter, legs it in verse 50. They, they deserted Jesus and fled. Mark then tells us in verse 51 about this young man who was following Jesus after his arrest. He clearly hurried there as he'd left his outer coat at home, just wearing his, his indoor clothes. Now, there's a good chance that this young man was Mark himself, the writer of the gospel, not one of the disciples, but a follower of Jesus nonetheless. Now, we have to remember that this is God's embryo of the future church. This is his blueprint of the new world order. This is his hope for the world. One is a betrayer. One ham-fistedly chops off someone else's earlobe. All the rest flee. And one even scarpers out of there in the buff, somehow hoping to make it home without anyone seeing him. It's a bit of a royal mess. Though to be fair on Simon Peter... Even though he hightailed it out of there, he actually loops back and follows Jesus at, at a distance, as verse 54 tells us. He'd seen what had happened to this young man who followed too close. So he goes about it a bit more wisely and circumspectly and follows at a distance. But he does follow this mob right into the courtyard of the chief priest's home, which, as we can admit, is actually really rather brave. We will come back to this scene next week. Meet the corrupt religious leaders, verse 55 through 60 and 64 to 65. These are the folks who believe that the ends justify the means. These are the people who are so convinced of their rightness that they live life according to the maxim by any means necessary. Now, I imagine that we all like to think that we are generally upstanding people who are mostly okay and by and large righteous. The Sanhedrin would have thought of themselves like this too. But it's only as we allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in us that we're free to look at ourselves with honesty. It's only as we look at the Lord with eyes of faith, high and exalted, seated on a throne. It's only as we hear the angels describe God as holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's only then that we are given the grace to respond with these words, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man, a woman of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. It's only as we see God as he truly is that we can see ourselves as we truly are. 
Until that moment of revelation occurs, we stay in our miserable state of being wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, Revelation 3.17. And so for sure the Sanhedrin thought that what they were doing, they were doing for the greater good. But let's inventory reality for a second. Let's look at just how corrupt they were. Number one, they arrested Jesus at night, verse 46, when no one could see. As Jesus pointed out, they had plenty of uh, chance to arrest him while he was on their turf in full view of the people. And if they knew they were in the moral right, then they would have done it like this. But instead, they chose the cover of dark to spring the trap. Number two, they met secretly in the house of the chief priest in the night, Matthew 26, verse 3, instead of in the day in the normal meeting hall near the temple. Number three, none of the whole Sanhedrin, none of the whole Sanhedrin could find any evidence against him. They, they, they tried, they really, really tried, as we see in verse 55. And so they gathered people who were willing to commit perjury, so, and these people gave evidence that conflicted with each other, verse, 55, verse 56. They still didn't have a leg to stand on. Jesus was beyond reproach. Even when some people got up and shared about Jesus, saying that he would destroy the temple made with human hands and in three days build another, even then, their testimony did not agree. Verse 59. So you have a nighttime sneak attack. You have meeting in a secret place. You have witnesses committing perjury. You have conflicting accounts. This is the opposite of people who had the high moral ground. These were twisted, power-hungry individuals bent on two things. Number one, keeping their power, and number two, removing anyone who would challenge that power. They jumped through many hoops and performed massive moral gymnastics to convince themselves that they were still in the right. Which is so like us, right? That is so you, and that's so me. We will do anything that we can to satisfy our guilty consciences. We will try to prove Jesus wrong. We'll try to discredit him. We will uh, try to sway ourselves into believing that Jesus isn't who he says he is and that he has no claim over our lives. We're like spoiled children who try to convince ourselves that we are justified with stealing the cookie that mum told us not to. We are like willful teenagers who talk ourselves into stealing money from dad's wallet, even though we know it's wrong. We know we're wrong. And we know that Jesus is right. And we hate that. And we hate that, he, that he's right. And we hate that we know he's right. And we hate that he knows that we know that he's right. It's just not fair. And so we sulk and we scheme and we connive. And we may even end up with the thing that we wanted. We may even get our way. But do you know what we lose? A clean conscience. A peaceful heart. We take the priceless knowledge that things are right between us and God and we trade it for peanuts, for sin, for things that that are worthless. Hold on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with, with regard to their faith. 1 Timothy 1 verse 19. Hold on to faith and a good conscience. Is this you? Are you meeting in the night, in the dark, and secret places? Are you telling lies? Are you perjuring yourself? Are you trying to buy off your God-given conscience with things that can never satisfy it? Listen to me. The only thing that can fill and satisfy your conscience is the spirit-given assurance that things are right between you and God. And And that can only come 
through denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him, Mark 8.34. Make every effort to, to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to, Luke 13.24. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, Hebrews 10.22. Therefore, there is now No condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 verse 1. Finally, meet the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One. Since Jesus was arrested, he's behaved just like we would expect Jesus to behave. He's healed one of his enemies. He's gone peacefully like a lamb to the slaughter, Isaiah 53 verse 7. He hasn't resisted. Having won the battle of the I can prayer, he's now ready to go and do that very thing that he came on earth to do. You know those times when you see someone just thriving in their vocation. We, we, we can see that they love their job. We can see that people love them in that role. We can see it brings them joy and fulfillment. They do it with excellence. And we say to ourselves, they were born for this. We say to them, you were born for this. Now, Jesus is the only person who was born to die. When he was a kid, he didn't have goals of financial success or early retirement. His one ambition was to die. When, when he was 12, he said that he must be about his father's business, Luke 2 verse 49. Now he's 33 and this is still his goal. He was born for this. As a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53 verse 7. In the face of all the false testimony, Jesus was silent. So much so that the high priest started to get frustrated. Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Not a word. Verse 61. So what is it that opened Jesus' mouth? Well, we know for sure that it wasn't trying to defend himself against the lies. We know that from the text. It was the truth that caused him to finally speak. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Verse 61. It was at this moment that Jesus waived his fifth amendment rights. Jesus became the key witness against himself. Until he spoke, they they did not have a case. But Jesus waited until he had the right reason to self-incriminate. He wasn't going to go to the cross over garbled reports and falsified testimonies. No way. He wanted to go for the right reason. And agreeing loud and clear that he was the Messiah, the son of the blessed one, well, that's a flipping good reason. I am, he said. And I don't think he said this quietly. I believe he said this loud and clear for all to hear. He said it with conviction and pride. This is who he was. No more hiding. All those times he held back because now wasn't the time. All those times he wore his glory in secret. All the times he told parables rather than speak clear statements. Those times are now done. This is a reason that he can go to death. Being the Messiah, the son of the blessed one. Are you listening, Father? This is who I am. 
Are you listening, creation? This is who I am. Are you listening, all of humanity? This is who I am. Are you listening, hopeless sinner? This is who I am. Are you listening, rebellious humans that I love so much? This is who I am. Are you listening, Satan and his angels? This is who I am. I am the one who's, who, who's BFF identified as the Christ, the son of the living God, Matthew 16, 16. And I'm the one who my worst enemy identified as the Messiah, the son of the blessed one, Mark 14, verse 61. I am who you say I am. The truth that finished Jesus is the same truth that frees you. The eyes of the chief priests and the Sanhedrin are willfully and stubbornly blind to who Jesus is. But one day they will see him and there will be no doubt in any cell of their bodies that he is who he says he is. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Verse 62. You will see the Son of Man. You choose not to see now, but one day you will. And this is the choice in front of all of us. We bow now or we beg later. We follow now or we fall away later. We revere now or we regret later. Hindsight's always 20-20, we say. But there will be a moment, according to Scripture, where there will be a collective hindsight of perfect vision. Everything will be made clear. Everything will make sense. When we see Jesus as the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven, we will all agree that Jesus is Lord. We will all be of the same opinion. The only time, the singular time in all of human's history that this will happen. But for many of us, by then it will be too late. We can look at Jesus now and be saved, Isaiah 45 verse 22, or we can look at him in glory later and call to the mountains and rocks to fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, Revelation 6.16. The choice is ours. See now with the eyes of faith or see later when it's too late. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In a world where truth is a dirty word, let me tell you, there is someone whose very essence is truth, and his name is Jesus. We say we want the truth, like Lieutenant Caffey and a few good men. But to quote Colonel Nathan Jessup, can you handle the truth? We say we want it, but can we handle it? Because the truth looks like a middle-aged Jew standing before an illegal kangaroo court in Roman-occupied Palestine. The truth looks unimpressive and weak in shackles and exhausted. In this passage, we've seen lies received as truth, verse 60, and truth received as lies, verse 63. It wasn't the false testimony that convicted Jesus. It was his true testimony that convicted him as worthy of death. Verse 64. And this truth that finished Jesus is the same truth that can set you free. No one can look at Jesus and remain neutral. The knowledge that should have caused them to fall down and worship him instead caused them to spit at him, blindfold him, and slap him in the face. Verse 65. We hear his, his testimony and either we see a religious fake who needs to be silenced at any cost 
Or we agree with his confession and we confess with him that he is Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the Blessed One. We either look at the cross and see it as just deserts for a foolish, self-righteous hypocrite who's fooled billions of people throughout history, or we look at the cross and see it as our only boast, Galatians 6.14. We either regard the cross as an offense, Galatians 5.11, or we see it as our only hope to escape condemnation, Colossians 2.14. Looking at the cross, we are all guilty. We are all, each one of us. We are those who have betrayed Jesus and deserted him. We are all those who have abandoned him. We are all those who have condemned him. We have all spat on him and mocked him. We've all tried blindfolding him so that he cannot look on us with those eyes of convicting love. We've all been tempted to run away from him, escaping the suffering that following him brings. Just like Mark fled, leaving behind his clothes, so we flee from Jesus and leave our only covering, his righteousness. And we flee into the darkness, hoping that it will cover us, but it won't. Our only hope is in the Lord, in the person of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, Hebrews 6.19. The truth that finished Jesus is the same truth that frees you. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John chapter 8, verse 32.